милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибить их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. A lot has been happening in Russia in the last few months. Putin announced constitutional reform in January, and that has been accelerated in the last week. It looks like changes will now allow him to stay in power until 2036. In addition, seven anti-fascists were given long sentences for terrorism in the so-called network case in February. This case is widely seen as a sham, involves the torture of the defendants and a show trial. Then there is the general economic malaise in a political atmosphere that has everyone guessing. To get a sense of things, I turn to two friends of the show, Ilya Buzraikis and Ilya Metveev, for their take on things from the political left. One programming note before we get started. This conversation was recorded on February 16th, and a lot has changed in Russia since. So keep that in mind as you listen. Ilya Buzraikis teaches political theory at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences, or Shaninka, and Ilya Medvedev is a professor of political science at the Russian Presidential Academy of National Economy and Public Administration, or RANEPA, in St. Petersburg. Together, they host the Russian-language podcast Politicheski Dievnik. Here's Ilya and Ilya. Well, just to start, and so people can know which Ilya is speaking, um, why don't you uh, briefly introduce yourselves? Right. So I'll start. Because I usually start at our podcast, right? So my name is Ilya, and that will be difficult for this recording, right? Because <laughs> Ilya Budraisky's name is also Ilya. So <clears throat> I'm a professor at um, political science department at uh, RANIPA, St. Petersburg. So RANIPA is a big network of uh, public administration schools, which ironically were party schools in the Soviet Union, right? Uh, schools for nomenclatura. And uh, then they turned them into just general purpose management and uh, public administration colleges. And uh, I work at one of the big ones in St. Petersburg, right? But we have a pretty good political science and international relations department. Okay, uh, so my name is also Ilya, uh, uh, Ilya Budraitskis. Uh, I'm um, uh, currently working in the Moscow School for Social and Economic Sciences, which is the uh, uh, kind of small uh, institution, but quite visible and uh, quite well known, uh, especially uh, because of... Uh, it's political philosophy department where I uh, currently uh, currently uh, lecturing. Uh, as well, uh, I'm um, uh, working also for uh, some other uh, uh, institutions, uh, giving uh, courses on uh, uh, political and cultural theory. So you guys, you both have recently started a podcast. It's almost, you know, I think what it's almost a year old, or is it already a year old? Yeah, uh, it's called. It's a Russian language podcast, Politicheski Dievnik, uh, or Political Diary in English. So, one, tell me about the podcast, why you guys started it, and and what's what's its goals? Okay, I will uh, I, I I will start. So uh, basically, we are um, now in the moment in Russia when we uh, have a uh, kind of uh, big 
birth of the different types of the um, uh, political channels on uh, YouTube and uh, political uh, postca- podcasts uh, as well. Uh, but uh, in um, our uh, quite complicated political situation, most of the uh, uh, political channels, they uh, belong to the liberal tradition or uh, Stalinist tradition. And uh, this is a kind of paradoxical thing uh, when uh, all these new uh, opportunities given by the uh, social media, by YouTube uh, and so on, they they were used in the most uh, successful way by uh, the very uh, hardcore uh, backward reactionary wing of the uh, left movement uh, in Russia. So uh, our aim was to uh, to create an alternative, uh, to create an uh, alternative which can present uh, the analysis of the current events of the and use uh, and so on uh, from the uh, left uh, non-Stalinist, uh, non-authoritarian point of view. Right. So I would also add that uh, we started a podcast specifically and not a YouTube channel, for instance, because uh, for some reason we think that podcasting will be really big in Russia, right? So it will grow. Uh, I must admit that uh, up to this moment, our expectations were not fulfilled, right? So we don't see a dramatic increase in uh, the number of um, people who listen to the podcast. But what we noticed is that our uh, public, people who listen to our podcast, they're very, very loyal, right? And uh, it might be a, a quite small group of people, maybe 500 people on average, for a podcast, right? But uh, these 500 people are deeply engaged and they ask us questions and uh, they really wait for uh, a new recording. And uh, mm, we see that, uh, so they're really into it, right? And in that sense, it's quite rewarding. So I think on YouTube, you don't have this. On YouTube, it's more fleeting. And with podcasting, these uh, public uh, people who listen to our podcast, they, they really like what we do. And uh, so, yeah, so in that sense, uh, it kind of works, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that's that's certainly more my my experience as well. You do have a, a loyal listenership more than this, you know, kind of transitory one. So what, what kind of things do you guys do on the podcast? It's a discussion um, and you, you deal with the topics of the day, but, you know, which is a, is a standard format for a lot of podcasts. But uh, what is your particular like angle what are you trying to do with addressing some of the main issues both in russia and internationally so uh, our let's say normal uh, regime is uh, to uh, make it uh, like once in two weeks or in three weeks and uh, comment uh, three main events uh, uh, from this period of time uh, so we, of course, we focused on Russian politics. We focused on uh, international politics, and uh, our uh, aim was to contextualize uh, the uh, r- the uh, comments from the left point of uh, view uh, in the national scale and on the global scale uh, as well. And uh, also we. Um, uh, have uh, what we call the shit parade uh, and uh, that normally is the the third point of our uh, of our uh, normal uh, conversation and uh, that basically something from uh, from the recent publications uh, from the uh, Russian uh, political sphere like uh, some terrible uh, political comments from liberals or from uh, pro, mostly from liberals, but also from uh, pro uh, Putin conservatives, uh, conservatives uh, as well. 
So I would add that uh, initially we planned to have this uh, sheet show or sheet parade as a specific rubric on the podcast, right? So we start with serious stuff and then we go on to to have like uh, a comic relief moment. But then uh, it kind of morphed into part of every news item, right? So so we discuss it like normal stuff around it. We, we provide actual analysis and when we look into the crazy liberals and crazy pro-Putin uh, publications writing about these particular events, right? And we see that we just cannot not react to this, right? This is why we have uh, a separate sheet show for every news item on our podcast as of now. So, you know, let me, let me ask you about this because, you know, a lot of, a lot of my listeners and a lot of people, uh, you know, who are outside of Russia and can, you know, understand Russia through a lot of Western reporting, a lot of Western reporting by and large focuses on, you know, what liberals are doing or liberal oppositionists in Russia, you know, who who is working against the regime. So, um, you know, so many people are unfamiliar with why you would you know, do this shit show part of your podcast. So what are some of the, the main things that uh, that you um, not just ridicule, but uh, point out about liberal commentary in Russia that people should not, should be aware of? Uh, so uh, I, I, I probably will clarify that, well, we have um, a liberal political opposition. So that's people like Navalny, for example, who are... Uh, of course, not our uh, our hero, but we can uh, critically support him in uh, in some ways, and we don't think that he his uh, his uh, analysis is uh, shitty. But sometimes it is. But whatever. But uh, also, you have a uh, what you can call the liberal uh, media sphere. So the people who are not political activists, but who mostly dominate in the Russian internet, who dominate in the uh, most of the, let's say, uh, newspapers for educated class. Uh, so uh, these people uh, reproduce again and again uh, the certain uh, agenda, the right-wing agenda, the very uh, strange uh, view on the uh, on the global situation uh, uh, where uh, the the ideas uh, of uh, let's say anti-communism anti-sovietism or uh, attempt to uh, identify every kind of uh, politician everywhere through the uh, through the uh, perspective of uh, if he is a useful uh, idiot for Putin or not. So all these kind of uh, people, they're, uh, they're our uh, usual uh, object of analysis in, uh, in our shit parade. So I would add that uh, the left, which is in a position to Putin in Russia, finds itself in a quite strange uh, position because uh, uh, most of the opposition that exists in Russia is still uh, liberal opposition, especially the one that dominates in the media, right? And uh, uh, to the Western observer, to the American observer, for instance, Russian opposition is more like Republicans in America, right? So uh, they do, they don't like Putin. Yes, they are in a position to Putin, but otherwise their views are very, very conservative. So they are pro-market. Most of them are pro-market. They're against uh, feminism. They're against uh, migrants. They are uh, kind of socially uh, conservative and uh, fiscally liberal. Yeah, uh, there are cl cl climate deniers. Climate deniers. Yes. Yeah, so this this was the big topic on our podcast for for many for many uh, episodes, right? Because we see there's just this blanket rejection of the climate agenda in Russia by the regime and the opposition, right? So people who at least recognize what's going on with climate change, it's a small minority in a position as well as, uh, I mean, in, in government. And, uh, uh, and so this kind of universal hatred for Greta Thunberg, this was, uh, this was uh, for, for us, this was something of uh, a revelation, in fact, because uh, we had a lot of shit shows before, but this kind of shit show was just uh, ridiculously, you know, outrageous when everyone wanted to 
chime in and comment on Greta's uh, stupid remarks by a stupid girl who was manipulated by her parents or by some climate conspiracy or whatever. So this kind of stuff you expect from Republicans in America or from uh, right-wing parties in Europe. You don't expect it from uh, people who consider themselves enlightened, you know, and progressive, uh, but, but they really aren't, right? Yeah, so so basically you can say that the Russian liberals, they are not uh, cultural liberals in American, uh, in American perspective. And, and uh, uh, so it's, uh, we're in a very strange posi- uh, position, as, as Ilya pointed out, where we uh, used to be a kind of cultural liberals uh, or, or cultural Marxists uh, that uh, try to um, challenge uh, this uh, d- dominated uh, quite uh, right-wing uh, point, uh, point of view from the... Uh, most of the Russian liberals. Uh, I have to ask because it seems to me that the the, the liberals you you guys are speaking about they actually share more ideologically with Putin than they than not. So how what is their opposition to Putin based in? Because if they're pro free market, if they have kind of conservative cultural you know positions, if they're climate deniers, I mean it sounds like in some ways. You know, there's not too far from the ideology of the Kremlin on these issues. So what differentiates them? Uh, So uh, I would say that uh, 20 years ago, when Putin just came to power, a lot of those people and their predecessors, they actually supported Putin as uh, a liberal section of uh, his uh, social base, right? So he had great support among the liberals precisely for these reasons, because liberalism in Russia is very conservative. It's inherently conservative. I mean, to to American listeners, it's weird, it's paradoxical, but that's what we have in Russia, conservative liberalism, right? So uh, I would say that uh, the crucial point for the liberals is uh, um, confrontation with the West, first of all. So they they cannot tolerate this confrontation with America and with European countries, uh, this uh, explicit kind of anti-Western stance. This is um, this is the breaking point for them. So uh, for this, they really hate Putin. Right. And paradoxically, they also hate him for what they perceive as his leftist, you know, elements in, in his uh, in his approach. For instance, uh, the nationalization of uh, many uh, oil companies and some resource companies and uh, uh, a big state sector in the economy. So they're also against this, right? And I mean, it doesn't mean that we as leftists support Putin in this because the state sector in Russia, the public sector in Russia is basically the site of crony capitalism, right? And in that liberals are right. But at the same time, I mean, they would prefer to replace it with a fully privatized, uh, you know, economy, including the resource economy. So for them, this kind of statist approach is unacceptable. But I think the biggest point is uh, confrontation with the West and uh, uh, and also, I mean, um, you know, the drive for these traditional values and, and stuff which our government, you know, perpetrates, this is too much for them. So for them, the, this kind of stuff, they, they, they also cannot tolerate all of it, right? So their opposition isn't based in, de- in, a, in a desire for a democratic, a more liberal democratic system? Right. No, I think... Definitely, yeah, they they would like to see a more democratic system, but then for many of them, this is not articulated clearly, right? For many of them, it's just uh, a stance against Putin, right? So what do they actually want? That's a big question. Yeah, so uh, also I, I want to add to what Ilya said already, so and with what I totally agree. Uh, that uh, the uh, let's say historical uh, historical political moment uh, for the Russian liberals uh, are also quite important uh, in in a way that they uh, seriously believe that uh, Putin's Russia is the uh, some kind of continuation of the Soviet Union. So they uh, believe that the Russian uh, transit to the global normality uh, didn't happen. Uh, so it was interrupted uh, by, by Putin personally. Uh, and uh, Putin's uh, Russia uh, survived as, a, as a, uh, uh, some kind of... Uh, 
Soviet uh, ghost or the Soviet uh, zombie which uh, was uh, not uh, overcame uh, two decades ago. So uh, that's why they believe uh, that what we need uh, first is not just uh, democratization but decommunization. So some kind of uh, symbolic, uh, symbolic break with this uh, past uh, represented by uh, Putin's regime. So I, I, I think that this uh, anti-Soviet uh, narrative is, uh, uh, is uh, in, in the very core of uh, their opposition to, to Putin. So at this, at this point, I would like to complicate things a bit because, of course, not all Russian liberals are like that, right? So first of all, the activist part is much better than the media part, the commentariat, right? And uh, a lot of liberal activists are just genuine fighters against authoritarianism, right? But the commentariat, the, let's say, liberal establishment, this is a pretty cohesive, you know, group of people, and uh, they have all those uh, conservative views that we described. And in fact, uh, uh, Navalny, who is uh, whose whose roots are in this group of people, right? But who stands out as much more popular than any one of them, right? So he often has conflicts with those people because they perceive his what they think is his leftist populism. They think that he is too left on the economic issues. They think that he, in general he's like a demagogue. He's, uh, uh, I mean, uh, so they they find a lot of faults in him. Right. And and so the liberal camp is uh, kind of divided between, let's say, the activist part, the political part and the media part. Ilya, I, I want to talk, have you talk a little bit about the, the new collection of essays you published in, in the English title. It's a great title uh, in, in English, uh, in Russian, too. But in, in English, I really like it. I translated it as we all live in the world hunt, Huntington built. Um, what? Talk because I know that you've written um, a lot about this Soviet ghost, this hangover that is perceived amongst uh, amongst the Russian uh, kind of liberal punditry. So, what are some of the things you deal with in your your new collection of essays? Uh, so uh, basically, the uh, the main idea of this uh, collection is to uh, present the Russian or Putin's uh, conservative turn as the uh, part, some special part of the global neoconservative, neoliberal uh, trend uh, that, that we have in the world. So uh, that's why I uh, put there uh, some uh, essays uh, about the, the very definition of the conservative term. And then I move to um, uh, the question of uh, how we can analyze the uh, exact um, uh, Russian regime as the some special uh, type of uh, um, uh, some special type of conservative term. Uh, so that that is the main idea of the of the of the book. But of course, there are very different uh, parts of this book. So on some of them, I focus mostly on the some components of the Putinist conservative ideology. In some of them, I uh, um, focused on uh, if we can uh, say that uh, the, the uh, conservatism is a kind of main ideological uh, uh, trend in, uh, in uh, Russia in general. So, yeah, so that, that is what this book is about. Hey, you're listening to the SRB podcast. I'm Volodya Wagner, and as a journalist interested in the history and current state of progressive politics, organized labor and repression in post-socialist Eurasia, I listen to Sean's podcast because I know of no other English language platform that offers the same kind of nuanced, thoughtful and in-depth discussion of these and similar issues. Do you think, I mean, because one of the, the debates about, you know, the end of, of Putin's rule is will Putinism outlast Putin, or will this ideology outlast Putin? So where where do you fall on that question? Uh, so I, I I think that uh, and and that is very important point about uh, conservatism in uh, in general that conservatism uh, never was a kind of consistent ideology. 
so it could be contradictory uh, it could be um, kind of liquid uh, and uh, changing and so on and uh, that's why any kind of conservative uh, doctrine uh, which pretend to be a kind of consistent doctrine uh, somehow contradict with a real conservative political praxis. That's why, for example, in uh, Russia we have uh, Alexander Dugin who used to be the main uh, uh, far-right conservative uh, theoretician of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, Russia uh, in the moment, uh, who, is, uh, who is not uh, satisfied uh, with uh, what is going on with the, with the regime, who always uh, try to criticize it uh, from the more right-wing and uh, more consistent uh, uh, conservative position. Uh, of course, uh, conservatism in uh, as the political um, uh, praxis could be uh, could be very uh, flexible, and uh, in fact, uh, that uh, was the the reason and the ground why uh, conservatism uh, merged with the neoliberal economic policy in the in the moment in uh, in the West, and then. Uh, as I tried to uh, point out in this book, uh, in Russia in uh, 2000s and uh, later on. So uh, my um, uh, I, uh, another idea in this book that uh, in um, uh, in full sense we can uh, talk about the conservative uh, turn in Russia after 2012-2014, so after the start of the uh, third term of uh, uh, Putin on, on the ground of the opposition to the mass liberal uh, protests uh, and uh, with the uh, beginning of the Ukrainian conflict. I, I would add that uh, even from our previous conversation, you could see that uh, conservatism really defines uh, post-Soviet Russian political landscape, right? Because the regime is conservative and the liberal opposition is inherently conservative. And uh, this is basically, in my opinion, a reaction and a response to Soviet uh, ultra-progressivism, right? At, at least a declared kind of ultra ultra-leftist, ultra-progressivist approach. So, uh, you know, this strong negative reaction against the Soviet Union uh, transformed into a general, very conservative attitude. This is why, uh, you know, during perestroika, during early 90s, so uh, you, sometimes you can't distinguish liberals from conservatives. You know, their rhetoric is so close because they write about... Uh, fear of the masses, hatred of the masses, this kind of strong elitist, anti-populist views. So this is common for both uh, conservatism and liberalism in Russia, right? And this is why I think uh, Ilya's contribution is so important, because uh, in order to understand uh, Russian ideology, let's say, not just Russian politics, but Russian ideological landscape, you need to understand conservatism. So, uh, and uh, I just want to add that uh, in a paradoxical way, uh, you can see that the uh, Russian uh, Communist Party or, or the uh, most of the Russian Stalinists, uh, they, are, uh, they are conservatives also in a way. <laughs> so you can say that Putin's conservatism is, is, a, kind of, uh, is a kind of mixture, it's a, it's a kind of uh, recomposition of different elements of uh, uh, conservatism that we have in Russia, uh, the anti-communist conservatism uh, taken from liberals uh, and uh, pro-Stalinist uh, uh, and nostalgic conservatism uh, taken from uh, so-called uh, red-brown opposition from, uh, from the 90s. No, this is actually really interesting because, you know, Putin then kind of looks like a, he's a mosaic of different aspects of Russian conservatism and he embodies, you know, or his, the, the, his politics embodies these various tenets within Russian conservatism writ large from its liberal to its more, you know, nationalist wings. Um, and, but it, by doing that, he, re, he, the ideology remain, well, it, it remains flexible while keeping kind of a conservative core to it. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, uh, his um, kind of um, 
uh, his flexibility in terms of ideology does not cover uh, the actual progressive uh, leftist elements. So he, you know, he integrates many types of conservatism into his rhetoric, into his ideology, but he never integrates uh, a truly kind of, you know, grassroots vision of uh, of uh, social change. This is why uh, I think it's incorrect to call Putin a leftist in any sense. So he's not an economic leftist. He's not, uh, you know, uh, a cultural leftist, obviously. And he's not an ideological leftist, right? And uh, a lot of uh, people in the West and also a lot of Russian liberals, they make this mistake, but this is basically incorrect. Putin is conservative to the core. I, I personally, I never understood this at all. I mean, I see this sometimes amongst Western commentators, like Western leftists, uh, seeing Putin as some sort of anti-imperialist or leftist tendency. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, so surprising that even some Russian liberals who are living here, they repeat uh, the same uh, argument, which 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 is really awful. Yeah, it just it just makes no sense. Uh, let's turn to the the constitutional reforms because I, I we we don't have much time left, and I want to make sure we get to a couple of things. Uh, first is you know the big announcement uh, Putin you know declared in the middle of January, and that is to basically reform the constitution. Um, what is your both of your view of of this move? And and what do you what do you make? How's it resonating right. in Russia? So who would start? Yeah, I can start. <laughs> All right, me. Since I've written an article about it, so right. So it's my responsibility now and forever. So uh, yeah, I mean, uh, let's start with the fact that Putin has a problem, right? Uh, his obvious problem is uh, the next election in uh, 2024, and. Uh, uh, According to the current constitution, he cannot go on another term, so uh, he has to find some kind of replacement. And the next president will be there for six years, right? Because previously they extended the presidential term. And Putin can return to presidency only in uh, 2030. And uh, at this point, he will be very, very, very old, right? So obviously, uh, you know, this date, uh, 2024 uh, is considered a problem and a source of tension within the regime, right? Because you need to find some kind of, you know, some kind of solution, some kind of workaround around this. And uh, uh, these announcements were clearly the beginning of the process of uh, transitioning from the regime uh, where Putin is uh, president to some kind of other regime where Putin still has power, but not as president, right? Probably. So, but we can't even say that for sure at the moment. And um, the, the interesting thing is that people don't really know what's happening, right? So uh, there is so little information, even though it's such a dramatic change to the constitutional core of Russian politics, you know, uh, there's just too little information to understand what is the end point. Because uh, for instance, uh, the most important change Probably the most important change in the constitution is uh, the new, um, you know, the legalization of uh, a new body called uh, state uh, state council, right? So state council is probably the most important uh, change, the most important novelty, and uh, the the paradoxical thing is that uh, the actual powers of the state council and the actual workings of the state council will be defined by a separate law. Right. And we have uh, a kind of popular vote on these constitutional amendments, which will probably come in uh, uh, April. Right. But this crucial law, which will clarify what does the state council do, might very well come after the vote. So what what are people voting for? Right. What 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 what, what are they voting for? So uh, I had to look for uh, an English translation of a Russian uh, a Russian phrase, Kot Mishke. Uh, so the closest is probably pig in a poke, 
At least th this is what, you know, the dictionary says. Pig in a poke. So we vote for a pig in a poke. We don't know what we vote for. And uh, and, and this is very uh, characteristic of uh, the regime's style of operation because they like to confuse people, they like to disorient people, and they like to seize their initiative. They like to be the ones who define the agenda, right? So what's happening? So they're calling the shots and everyone else is responding. And everyone else is responding differently because everyone is overwhelmed and disoriented so this is how i interpret it yeah what's what's interesting about the disorientation disorientation is that the disorientation seems to go to the almost to the very top of the government system like even even though i mean you know it, you could pretty much and and again it's only guessing that only a hand a really handful of people actually know what's going on and actually are part of this process Everyone else, even within the government itself, seems to be running around trying to figure out and read the signals and, you know, consult with, uh, you know, wizards about what the future holds. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even the fact that there was no kind of leak before the presidential address. So no journalist, no, you know, no paparazzi learned about uh, this kind of uh, dramatic announcement that Putin was going to make, right? That means that it was a very, very small group of people that uh, decided uh, the path, this, you know, the path of change that Putin is now announcing. Yeah, I, I, I want I want to add that uh, probably there is uh, still no one single plan, even even uh, around this very small uh, group of people around Putin, and uh, the main thing uh, in all this uh, Putin action was the uh, to to show the intention. You know, and, and intention was was uh, was understood properly by by the most of bureaucracy as uh, by the most of people. So everyone understood that Putin want, uh, wanted to uh, stay in power in some way. <laughs> yeah, so that that, that was clear. Uh, but uh, how it will uh, uh, it it will be implemented exactly? Uh, I think uh, nobody knows. Uh, uh, and and. Maybe uh, some people around Putin, they uh, have uh, at least a couple of different uh, plans which could be, uh, could be implemented. Now, what, is, uh, what is interesting uh, by now that af after this uh, kind of wow effect, uh, after uh, Putin, uh, Putin's uh, address uh, to the nation in uh, January, uh, nothing really uh, happens. So all what we have uh, now during uh, during the months after it is a very strange uh, and very uh, not uh, well prepared uh, process of uh, profanation of the constitution. Because uh, if you look at the videos of these uh, meetings uh, um, uh, of Putin and, and this kind of constitution uh, working group, it looks like a bad comedy. So uh, different people from uh, from sports, uh, from media, from uh, I I don't know some very strange uh, uh, spheres of our life. Uh, they they just uh, uh, you know have a, a kind of brainstorming what you want to change in the constitution. So for example, in the last meeting, uh, the propositions was. Like let's uh, put uh, that uh, Russia uh, has a nuclear bomb, you know, in the constitution. Or another proposal uh, was to put God, because Preferably we still both, have no God. Know, <laughs> so God so it looks weapons. like 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 a very bad comedy comedy show, and and it's very interesting because uh, the very uh, the very process of this uh, profanation of the uh, uh, constitution is. Uh, play some some political role yeah and I, I think that uh, there are some uh, some meaning behind it we have about we have about 10 minutes left um I Ilya I know you have to leave but other Ilya would you be willing to stick around or do you have to yeah, go absolutely. too okay yeah, so sure. so I the, I want before Ilya has to go I I do want to ask about um the network case I I want to get his thoughts on that so you know we just just this week um Several uh, young anti-fascists, seven anti-fascists were convicted to really long, and I guess sentenced to really long terms in prison for terrorism. Um, by, by all accounts, 
They were tortured into confession. This was nothing but a show trial. Uh, and we've seen some, you know, uh, opposition and protests and efforts to, you know, push back against this 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 horrible case. So, um, talk a little bit about what the case is and 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 your opinions on what it means in the larger context of of Russia right now. So, um, I, I think that uh, this case it's a part of uh, the so-called anti-extremist uh, activity and anti-extremist rationality of the. Uh, of the Russian police and uh, uh, secret uh, service uh, that uh, that is uh, developing during uh, at least uh, last decade. Uh, so in every uh, Russian region and every Russian city, uh, there are uh, special police departments which are called the uh, extremism uh, prevention centers. So the centers which are responsible to um, to, to uh, search for the extremists, and uh, of course all of these bodies they are uh, interested to create some uh, some kind of new uh, serious uh, cases which can push uh, their um, uh, their careers uh, in in this. Um, uh, in in these bodies, so uh, I think that what we have with the network uh, uh, is uh, is the exact result of of this uh, logic of this logic of the uh, increasing of the uh, power and responsibility of such uh, structures as uh, uh, this anti-extremist uh, centers and the uh, so-called uh, constitutional. Uh, security departments of the federal security service uh, on, on one side and uh, of course uh, there are some big political uh, interest from the top to send some signals uh, to the protest movement and especially for the uh, for the young people uh, who, who became more and more active in this uh, in this movement. So I, I think uh, that there are two, uh, two of these tendencies, let's say institutional and uh, political, that uh, merge in this uh, case, which is, uh, uh, which, which is really terrible and which uh, open uh, some new page in the history of the uh, Russian uh, repressions, because Russian political repressions, uh, because uh, never before during the uh, 20 years of uh, Putin's rule, uh, people could be arrested and stancing for for uh, uh, such uh, huge uh, terms. Uh, 18 years, near, I mean, the nearly for nothing. 18 years. Nearly for nothing, you know. So despite uh, all the um, uh, political aspects of this uh, case, so basically, you have uh, uh, a terrorist group uh, without any evidences of their terrorism, without any victims, uh, without any actions. So there, there is nothing. So it's like it's it's like pure uh, fabrication, uh, which which and without any plans and even without a name. The name was invented by Absolutely. FSB, Absolutely. right? Yeah. So so that's why uh, I and. Most of the uh, left-wing uh, people in Russia believe that this is very important uh, case. Uh, that is very important, crucial moment for the uh, left movement, for the political opposition to uh, to fight uh, against uh, this uh, this uh, case, to challenge uh, the the results of this uh, shameful uh, trail, uh, which uh, happened a couple of days ago in uh, Penza. Uh, and uh, uh, you s probably saw the reaction, the, uh, the, the some hundreds of young people who came to the uh, headquarters of the Federal Security Service uh, in Moscow. So I, I think this, uh, this uh, uh, is very important and this campaign should grow and, yeah, and we should participate in it. 
Yeah, I would add that I agree with uh, Ilya's analysis. I agree that there is uh, a desire of FSB agents and uh, uh, other types of political police to uh, build their careers on uh, torture and on fabrication of uh, these kind of political cases. But at the same time, I think that the decision from the top is more important than this kind of grassroots, you know, uh, pressure from FSB. So uh, it was a clear decision from the very top, uh, you know, several years ago to give carte blanche to the FSB because uh, uh, the regime decided that we live uh, in a new kind of new environment in which we need to stick to the simplest ways possible, you know, to um, to to fight the opposition and the simplest way is repression, right? This is why I think, uh, uh, you know, to me, one of the most kind of tragic things about this is that it is so deeply unnecessary, let's say, in a sense that it's very easy to change this kind of situation. FSB is just a bureaucracy. They need to receive an order to stop this. To, to stop torturing people and to stop fabricating cases. They didn't do it before at this scale. I mean, they didn't try to fabricate a Stalinist-type trial before with 18 years of, you know, prison terms, with maximum security prisons. They clearly did it because they were given permission to do it. And all, all the regime needs to stop this is just to revoke this permission, right? So, I mean, this is not like, for instance, poverty, which will be a huge problem for any kind of government in Russia, for any kind of political uh, uh, political regime, right? This particular problem is just the creation of uh, the very top of our political system, right? And uh, and to me, this is the most kind of the most um, infuriating aspect of all this. So the reaction in um, amongst uh, you know your comrades and and others in in Russian society. Um, do you think? I mean, it. What? What I to to speak about the the paradoxical aspects of Russian repression. It, in the sense, you know, you're right. You're right in the sense that this could, you know, a it's unnecessary, and b it's literally a phone call from above to revoke this this uh, this power. Um, and the but the idea is is that the repression will send a chilling effect through Russian society, but in some ways it seems to have have woken it up. Right from a from a period of kind of you know low level dormancy. So, do you think that this is it actually what the Kremlin thinks it will do? It's actually provoking the opposite, and that is a reaction because it's such an it's such an offense to political society. Unfortunately, I don't think that this particular case will be the starting point of some kind of big uh, you know new big opposition movement. Uh, and we see a very strong reaction. Actually, uh, thousands of people showing up in Moscow uh, to protest uh, this uh, conviction. But I don't think that this will be the trigger. At the same time, I think that it's really important that the authorities now have to stick to repression more and more. Because previously they had more flexibility. They had the whole system of managed democracy to kind of to co-opt their opponents, to, to manage their opponents, to divide the opposition and so on. And what we see now is that the system of managed democracy, the system of manipulated elections works uh, less and less. Even in completely unfair setting of Russian elections, which are manipulated, you know, to a very big extent, even in this setting, they still manage to lose elections, right? That's what we see. They, they, they lose even governorships. So, uh, which is actually very hard for them to do because uh, they control the media, they control the money, they, they control everything. And still they lose even governor's elections. And I think that this kind of... Um, component, the political component of the system becomes weaker and weaker, and uh, they, only, they, they can only resort to repression in order to compensate this political weakness, because Russian people are not happy, they're not happy with uh, almost a decade of uh, very, very weak growth and uh, poverty and uh, declining real wages and no economic prospects, and, uh, and so the support for the regime, especially for the ruling party, United Russia, is declining every, every year, basically, and every month, and this is, to me, the most important thing. 
because they cannot just solve all their problems by sending people to prison. There are hundreds of, you know, tens of millions of people in Russia. So what, what are they going to do to all of them? So uh, this is kind of a beginning of an end, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I probably will agree, but uh, I, I want to add that uh, the regime is still quite um, sensitive to the public reaction. And uh, they still... Uh, uh, able to uh, to mix uh, some kind of bad signals and good signals, you know, positive signals and negative signals. And uh, even during the uh, uh, last year, there, there were a number of uh, cases where they uh, released uh, some people who were already uh, stanced for uh, for uh, some. Um, uh, some uh, terms in uh, prison uh, only because of the very uh, active um, uh, protest campaign. So I, I think that one of the reasons for for this uh, terrible uh, result of the Pensa tra trail is uh, that there wasn't a strong uh, campaign before uh, before the trail. Yes, yeah, so mo most of uh, the people who are now uh, protesting or uh, writing some uh, angry comments, uh, they heard about uh, this case just uh, just two days ago. Yes, yeah, so th this is uh, this is a problem. So probably if they had this uh, hundreds of people near the uh, federal security some months ago, so maybe that could be uh, that could play some role. Yeah, because uh, because they they, they are not uh, uh, not fully idiots, <laughs> you know. They 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 and uh, they they uh, they uh, able to be flexible in the um, in the situation needed, especially um, just uh, two months before this uh, strange uh, plebiscite around the constitutional change where they tried to send some positive signals to the uh, society and uh, we, we, we saw this, uh, the, this uh, signals and um, uh, what happened in, uh, in uh, Pienza with, uh, with this uh, network is a, is a kind of the opposite and I, I think that uh, probably they even uh, didn't understand that it will provoke such a reaction. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ilya, I see you have to, you know, I know you have to go. Is there anything you'd like to add before you take off? Uh, no, basically, I, I, I know that you had some uh, question about Teodor Yes, Shannon. yeah, so uh, tell me, uh, if, yeah, maybe. yeah, so, you know, uh, Teodor Shannon, who, who founded the, the, uh, the, in university in Moscow, known as Shaninka, you know, he was such a, it's such a giant figure. He's one of these people who, you know, their life is a 20th century life, as I like to call it. Uh, and he died, I guess, two weeks ago now. Um, so, you know, tell you know, what do you, what do you think of Shannon and and his importance in in Russian uh, intellectual circle and academic circles? Yeah, I, I will say just a few words. But uh, as far as I'm uh, working in the Moscow School for Social Economic uh, Scientists, uh, Sciences, which uh, which is also known as Shaninka, so which is the university uh, founded by uh, Theodor Shanin in the early 90s, uh, I, I will say that he uh, occupied some very special and very important place in the Russian public and uh, academic sphere as the uh, representative of the, the best tradition of the Western left-wing academia, uh, who... Uh, decided to to go to to Russia to bring these uh, traditions of the critical university of the uh, freedom of uh, uh, expression and academy uh, to the kind of critical uh, spirit of uh, sociology uh, students uh, self-management and uh, uh, self-organization and, and so on and so on uh, in the post-soviet uh, russia so basically he was uh, our uh, you know only representative of the spirit of uh, 68 <laughs> you know which 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 we never uh, experienced in the in the uh, soviet uh, history but uh, which existed uh, somehow with the figure of uh, of theodor shanin 
uh, he was uh, he, he was of course he was a great sociologist he was the uh, great historian as well uh, he wrote a number of uh, various uh, very uh, important uh, books of the very different uh, of the very different kind so his main topic was the the, the peasantry uh, but uh, also for example he wrote a brilliant a brief history of the first Russian Revolution of 1905, or he wrote an extremely interesting book on the uh, Marx and his relation to to Russia in the last decades, uh, decade of uh, his life. And unfortunately, this book is uh, still not translated into uh, into Russian. Yeah, and it's out of print so, in English as well. Uh, I, I think it was published in uh, in English in in some eighties. Yeah, but it's 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 a great book. So uh, I I think that uh, uh, of course it's it's a big uh, it's a big uh, loss for uh, for uh, for us for not just for our university but for the uh, Russian uh, Academy uh, in general. Great, wonderful. All right, I'll, I'll let you go and uh, I'll ask Ilya a few other questions. So. Uh, and and finally, um, you know, on your podcast again, you you got both of you deal with the the international context of Russia, but also you you pay attention to you know, judging from your own Facebook feed, you're you're very plugged into international issues. Um, you know, you 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 you're clearly following the Bernie Sanders uh, campaign here in the United States. Um, Talk, what yeah talk, talk yeah talk about the your your connection with international like struggles and in, international politics and how that connects with your understanding of domestic politics in Russia yeah sure so um, on the personal level it's very simple when you have uh, an opposition like the one we have in Russia right you want to have some hope outside Russia let's say it's very simple you want to you want to follow public figures that align with your own political views that represent the kind of politics that you want to see in Russia and sometimes you see it but it's much more impotent than in uh, in uh, England with Corbyn or in America with Sanders right so Sanders and Corbyn uh, Unfortunately, Corbyn, you know, he gave hope to, to me and to many leftists in Russia and uh, his uh, defeat was felt tremendously by me, at least. So I like that was that was really a low moment for me because I thought that Corbyn is really in some ways he's probably even better than Sanders. He is just so consistently anti-imperialist. He's uh, un unlike unlike many other left-wing politicians in the West, right? So so he's such a great guy, and the fact that he lost, he was outmaneuvered by forces within his own party, you know, by this uh, rabid conservative media. That was that was uh, a tough blow. And and Sanders, I mean, uh, so I'm always thinking that. Currently, it's such a good thing that America is uh, so self-observed, let's say. So even though Corbyn lost, Americans, they just don't care about other countries. And this is why Sanders has a chance, because, I mean, what, what, what's England, right? England is, I mean, it's somewhere, you know, far away and we have our own situation. So to me, like, I was so afraid that uh, Corbyn's defeat will hinder Sanders' chances. But I see that no one cares in America because they think that America is, yeah, it's just it's a center of the world. And whatever happens in other countries, we just don't care about it. So that's a really good thing. I never... I never thought our narcissism would actually play to our favor. No, no, no. I mean, for sure, like, it's very good that you're narcissistic in that respect. Because, like, in Russia and any other country except America, people would say, look at Corbyn, this type of politics has no, you know, has no future, it's hopeless. But in America, yeah, Corbyn, whatever, like... What's Cor What's England? England is just a small island, and we are USA, you know? So that that's good. That's a good thing. And, uh, and now, of course, I'm following, like, I'm following the debates within the Labour Party. And, uh, of course, like, the positive thing is that the electorate is still very left-wing, right, in, uh, in England. And there is still a social base to a kind of Corbyn's politics. 
but uh, and of course I closely follow events in America and I follow Sanders's campaign and uh, I see that uh, his current campaign is uh, even better than his previous one, right? Because he tries to emphasize, you know, the voices of ordinary people in a way that he didn't do before. So I read this article about that. And I just think that, uh, you know, it basically gives me hope, the things that happen in America right now. So we talk about that on our podcast and uh, we talk about international issues in general, because first of all, we want to counter the liberal narratives about that. Because you can imagine the Russian liberals, you know, reaction to, to Sanders, for instance. For the, I mean, that, that's just, that's like, who? Sanders? What? So he's a communist. So what else do we need to say? No, though, surprisingly, Navalny tweeted something about how he's rooting for him. But I don't know what to make of all of that. <laughs> I think it was kind of ironic, but uh, to an extent, right? But I also think that it's uh, it's not completely ironic. I think that Navalny kind of recognizes something in Sanders because he thinks of himself as a populist as well. And he also has this element of left-wing populence, uh, populism, you know, especially for the last few years. And I think that Bernie is not completely alien to him, to his own personal sensibility, let's say. But you, you, you should have seen the shitstorm that he caused with the tweet right all like all the all the liberals coming to his twitter account to say that navalny i mean you're you're just stupid i mean how can you back a communist like do you know what communism is do we need to teach you about communism maybe you're too young you know stuff like that so so yeah we talk about this on our podcast because we want to provide an alternative opinion basically and uh, another thing is that of course russia itself plays a big role in international affairs so we try to cover russia's you know activities in syria for instance obviously for us it's a very big topic and uh, unfortunately this is one of the things that russian opposition did not fully process in my opinion they just don't understand what's going on they don't uh, appreciate the importance of this right they don't appreciate that russia currently acts as an imperialist power right and uh, part of it is that like i said liberals are conservative and for some of them imperialism in itself is not such a big problem right if it's if it is tolerated by the west because uh, when Putin started a war in Chechnya, uh, no other than Mikhail Kasyanov, who then became uh, Ogari Kasparov, I don't remember. So the future leader of uh, liberal kind of opposition, right? So he wrote uh, a column, he wrote an article uh, praising Putin for this. He said, look, Margaret Thatcher, she is our hero and she had Falklands and Putin has Chechnya. So, I mean, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a problem in itself for the type of liberal politics that we represent. And so, I mean, currently, of course, it's different because now no one would tolerate, uh, like the West would not tolerate Russia's actions. And this is why, of course, they are against this. But then again, most of opposition, they don't have the sense of what imperialism is, right? So they have these ridiculous arguments like, we spend money on this war, instead we could spend it on uh, like on hospitals and whatever i mean it's true but it's just part of the problem the problem is that russia systemically acts as a, you know a global power with imperialist ambitions and this kind of analysis this kind of position is just not present almost not present at all in opposition politics in russia and we try to talk about that as well on the podcast that was Ilya Butraikis and Ilya Medveev Ilya Butraikis teaches political theory at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences, or Shaninka, and Ilya Medvev is a professor of political science at the Russian Presidential Academy of National Economy and Public Administration, or RANEPA, in St. Petersburg. Together, they host the Russian language podcast, Politicheski Dievnik. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. 
As always, I want to thank my High Excellencies, High Wellborns and Noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Turn it into knives.